Hello, and welcome to the Ackerman Angle. I am your host, Damian Delaney, co-chair of the Wage and Hour Practice here at Ackerman, and a partner based in our Los Angeles office. And I'm here again, as always, with my co-host, Jeff Kimmel, who is also co-chair of our Wage and Hour Practice and a partner based in our New York office. Earlier this month, the U.S. Department of Labor made splashy headlines by announcing a proposed rulemaking on a new independent contractor rule that looks a lot like an older independent contractor rule. Independent contractor misclassification is an evergreen topic for employers and human resources professionals alike as regulators continue to tinker with the standard, sometimes overhaul it, and sometimes throw it away altogether. These constantly shifting guidelines keep us on our toes, and now DOL plans to step in and change the federal standard once again. This is an issue that we as wage and hour lawyers grapple with on a regular basis, right? Helping clients determine whether workers are properly classified as independent contractors or employees. And it's an important issue because with respect at least to the federal analysis, this determines uh, whether the federal wage and hour laws apply to the worker or not. So if a worker is determined to be an independent contractor, the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is the federal law that dictates the minimum wage over time, things like that, does not apply. If they're an employee, of course, they do apply. So it's, it's, a, it's a very important issue in, in that employers have to be aware of to make sure that they are not violating federal wage and hour law. So, Jeff, just to kind of orient us to the issue here, what is the current federal test uh, for determining whether a worker is an independent contractor or an employee? So, Damien, to answer that question, I think we actually have to first go back to what the rule has been for the past 70 plus years. Uh, prior to January 2021. Uh, And that rule is the economics reality test, which is a sort of totality of the circumstances test that looks at a number of factors. It's either five or six factors, depending on which federal circuit you're in, which courts are looking at it. Um, But it asks a court or the Department of Labor to look at these five or six different factors and determine under the totality of the circumstances whether the worker is under an economic reality in business for themselves or an employee. Those historically, those factors are the amount of control exerted over the worker by the business, uh, the degree of skill that's required by the worker to do the, 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 what they're, they're, to perform their responsibilities, uh, the degree of perma- permanency of the relationship between the worker and the business, the worker's opportunity and ability to influence uh, whether they, they make a profit or lose money um, doing what they do, uh, whether the worker is an integral, what the, whether the work performed by the worker, I should say, is integral to the operations of the business that's hiring the worker. Um, and those are, those are essentially the factors. Now, you ask me what the current state of the rule is. The current state of the rule is technically the rule that went into effect January 2021. It was a rule that was uh, initially proposed by the Trump administration and then ultimately after a comment period was determined to be the new rule to become effective as of January 2021. 
that rule took the economics reality test and modified it somewhat. And essentially it said, okay, there's still these five or six factors, and in fact you can look at other factors that are not listed here, but the way you need to look at it is that there's two core factors. And the two core factors are the control factor and the opportunity for profit and loss factor. And if those two factors weigh significantly in either direction of the worker being an employee or an independent contractor, then most likely that's the, that's the way the determination is going to go. Now you can also look at these other factors if it's a close call and they can ultimately influence the determination as to whether somebody's an independent contractor or employee. But you first need to look at these two core factors and these, these core factors are going to be the, the most important factors in the analysis. So then under that, this 2021 DOL standard, it sounds to me like if that employee bears those two core characteristics in one way or the, the points in one direction strongly or points in the other direction strongly, then the, 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 the current DOL rule, DOL rule is you don't need to look any further than that. Is that basically correct? It ends there. If it's clear, yeah, if it's clear based on the amount of control exerted over the worker um, that, you know, they're an employee and that the, the, the opportunity for profit and loss by the worker based on their own initiative is not there, right? Um, that they don't really control whether they profit or, or lose money based on the relationship. Um, they're going to be an employee and the analysis can end there. If it's a close call on those two or one goes one way, one goes the other way, then you know, the rule is right. you look at So it moved from more of a, of, a, of a holistic review prior, what we would as lawyers would call balancing test, right, to a greater focus on these. And the intent of that, if we were to divine intent from that, was to try to um, create, to, to expand, if you will, the, the likelihood or the chances are that a worker who is treated as an independent contractor can satisfy that test. Is that, is, is that fair, Jeff? Yeah, I mean, the bottom line, to put it bluntly, is it's a more business-friendly, quote, employer-friendly rule um, versus the totalitary, totality of the circumstances rule, the traditional rule under the economics reality test. Um, and, you know, this, these, one of the stated reasons was to create more clarity and make it easier for businesses to understand how they can properly comply with the law because, frankly, under the totality totality of the circumstances rule, you know, the courts could kind of decide how they want to decide, it, you know, if it wasn't like crystal clear, there's a lot of amorphousness in that rule and a lot of room for judicial discretion. Um, and the, the 2021 rule did in fact sort of make it a little clearer, but yes, but also slanted to be more to more, more business friendly. And of course, Jeff, against that backdrop, um, there are a number of states that have their own tests. You know, obviously the state where I practice is maybe the first one that probably a lot of our listeners think of as a state that goes on its own, um, in, down its own path um, with respect to independent um, contractor uh, misclassification. But 
as far as this current state of affairs is those those state tests operate separately and independently from the the current DOL rule and whatever impact this new rulemaking may have on state t- standards well that all that remains to be seen is that is that also correct i i think that's fair i mean this is really just the fair labor standards act that's what this is talking about the federal each state has may have their own analysis well so like you know what we call the abc test right that's the test that's in california now massachusetts uses that test new jersey under some but maybe not all circumstances on wage and hour issues uh uses that abc test which is you know a, a much uh um, how would you how would you the, a, or the abc the test against the well, abc test is you know uh, if, if you're looking for a rule that is a fairly bright line um, to comply with, it's the ABC test. I mean, the question is, um, you know, is the is the work subject to the control of the employer? That's the first question you ask. Um, does the um, work fall within essentially the core business of of the the employer? What the business exists to do, and then is the is the does the work fall within a customarily recognized trade or profession? And the person has to check all three of those boxes in order to be an independent country. All or nothing. Right. It's got to be right. all or nothing. It's not, it's not this amorphous, let's yeah. look at the totality of circumstances. And before we move back onto the current rule, you know, one of the things that the Department of Labor did say in publishing this proposed rule is they considered going the direction of the ABC law, mm-hmm. uh, the ABC analysis. And that ultimately they did not because they wanted to create some consistency or keep consistency in how things have been analyzed by the courts for a number of years and thought that this, they, they pretty much said that, that this proposed rule is more likely to pass scrutiny than if they all of a sudden decided that the ABC test is the way to go. Um, because that would be a significant about phase. And, for, and, for and there's something to that, so, I think, because um, you know ABC is a dramatic shift from economic realities. And, you know, in California, ABC was ultimately enacted by statute. It first came from the California Supreme Court, but then it was quickly within a year or so codified by the legislature. And so, you know, for a change that big, I think DOL may be kind of smartly recognizing you probably need legislative action to make that big of a change. That's exactly what the challenge would be, that you don't have the ability as the executive branch to make this law. This has to be done legislatively, so you're, you're 100% on target there. So, so, so what really happened is there was this Trump-era rule that went into effect at the beginning of the Biden administration, January 2021, and the Biden administration, the DOL, um, sought to essentially repeal that, withdraw it, so that it essentially never existed and goes back to what the rule was before. That was challenged in the courts, and that ability that that attempt to withdraw the 2021 rule is tied up in litigation. So the Department of Labor took another tact and said, okay, we're just gonna pass a new rule that's gonna supersede the 2021 rule. And that's what they've published for a comment period of 45 days um, as of October 13th. And so to be real clear with our listeners, Jeff, we're in that moment now, right? Where the DOL is soliciting comment from the public about 
you know, what do you think of our rule? What, what do we get right? What do we get wrong? Um, and that um, commenters are, are invited to, to make those comments and the agency um, is legally required to solicit those comments before it can make the rule final, right? Okay. Yes, so for, employer, for employers, businesses, or industry groups that feel this is a very important issue for them, after listening to our podcast, they should um, figure out, you know, they should get together, get with, with their lawyers and put together a comment to be submitted no later than November 28th. So I guess that brings us then to the, the crux of it, Jeff, is if, if our listeners um, have concerns about, about what the rule does, or, or in order to know if they have concerns about what the rule does, they need to know what the rule does. Um, I know it's a it's a hefty read. It's, it's I think it was 180 some pages, if I recall correctly. Don't quote me on that. But um, correct. You know what? You know we know this is basically a, a, a retrenchment to the economic reality test. But I think in going there, the agency is also um, given some. Uh, hints, I guess, as to how it, it, it intends to, to apply the test. And, and tell us a little bit about that, Jeff. Sure. So not only have they come back and said, we're going back to these five or six factors um, and not, you know, and back to the totality of the circumstances test and not this core factor test that was passed by the prior administration or put into effect by the prior administration. But within those factors, they've given guidelines to how they think they should be interpreted and analyzed. And again, those are all taking the judicial precedent for the past several decades, and they've sort of taken out the decisions and the precedent that leans m m more towards finding that a worker is an employee. So I can go through the factors um, and give an example of what the Department of Labor has said would, would influence the decision one way or another. The first factor they talk about is the worker's opportunity for profit and loss. Um, and what they do say right at the bat, this is no longer a quote core factor. It's just one of the several factors to be, to be analyzed. Um, and they say the, the question here is the extent to which the individual has an opportunity to earn profits or incur losses based on exercise of initiative. But that initiative is managerial skill or business judgment type of initiative, not if I work more hours, I'll make more money. Because that's more akin to how an employee makes money versus somebody in business for themselves. And they, they give an example. For each one of these factors, they give an example. The example they give here is a, a worker providing services to a landscaping company. Um, and they say that the, the worker performs assignments only as determined by the company for the company's corporate clients. The worker doesn't independently choose assignments, doesn't solicit work directly from the clients, uh, doesn't advertise their services, um, doesn't have any influence on reducing costs uh, in connection with how the services are performed. Um, that type of worker, they say, is not an independent contractor, that's an employee. Then they give a, a different example, which is that there's a worker that provides landscaping services directly to corporate clients. The worker 
produces their own advertising, negotiates their contracts, decides which jobs to perform and when to perform them, um, and decides whether to hire or how many workers or helpers to hire in performing the services. That, they say, is an example of a worker exercising managerial skill that affects their opportunity for profit or loss. So in that, you know, to I guess apply those hypotheticals, you know, to, to some real concept, I guess, the, the, the idea seems to be that the individual is making decisions about the work they will accept or how they go about doing the work, whether it's to bring in helpers or what tools to use or, or what, how much time to devote to the task as part of judgments about how to be profitable. Is that? And, how to and, be profitable, yeah. And, and the big thing that the, that the, that the DOL comes back to in a, in a few different factors is, are you bringing in the business? Right. Or are you, you know, are you creating the clients or are you just doing the work that someone else is is generating or originating? Mm -hmm. um, but yes, so that's really it's managerial skill versus, you know, what they call sort of hustle. If it's just the ability to to profit more because you're hustling, right, because you're working harder. Um, that's that's not really what they're looking for. They're looking sort of more of a business vantage point, business viewpoint of bringing in the clients, determining which jobs to take, which not, you know, which jobs not to take, what equipment to use, and of course hours and those kind of things. So the next factor is uh, the, uh, and again, this is a factor that sometimes some of the circuits looked at, some didn't look at over the years. But the second factor discussed by the Department of Labor is the investment by the worker in their quote business, right? Um, and the 2021 rule said this isn't really a separate analysis. This is part of profit or loss, right? How much investment you make in your business and the way you invest in your business is part of profit or loss, which frankly makes sense. The new rule is saying that this is this should be a standalone factor, this investment factor. Um, and they say that the, the type of investment we're talking about here um, is not simply just, you know, do you buy a computer, do you buy your own pens, that kind of thing. But it's more in the nature of a, this is the way they characterize it, a, a more of a capital or entrepreneurial type of investment. Um, so then they give, they give examples, which actually I don't think really bear out that distinction, but I'll, I'll, I'll give, tell you what the examples are that they gave for this investment factor. Uh, they, they use the example of a graphic designer that provides design services to a commercial design firm. The firm provides the software, computer, office space, and most of the equipment and supplies for the worker. The worker occasionally uses their own preferred drafting tools for certain jobs. In this scenario, the worker's relatively minor investment in supplies is not capital in nature and does little to further a business beyond competing, or completing, I should say, certain jobs. So this factor indicates employee status. Um, as an aside, I should say this has been something that's been gone back and forth in the courts over the years. This investment factor, whether you're looking at it as who invests more in the business, the worker or, or the, the business that's hiring them, or just how much investment the worker puts into the business. 
Um, and what the 2021 rule said was, you can't compare who invests more in their business. That's not, that really has no bearing on whether somebody's an independent contractor or an employee. I mean, lots of times where there's subcontractors hired or, or vendors hired by businesses, um, the business that's hiring the vendor is a bigger business. So what? That doesn't mean that the entity or the person they're hiring is not an independent contractor. It's just, it, you know, it's an irrelevant fact. But by using that word in, in their analysis here for this proposed new rule, um, where they say the worker's relatively minor investment in supplies, um, they're bringing that back. And they're saying, yes, we think you can compare the worker's investment versus the hiring entity's investment. So, they're, so that's one element of that. So, Jeff, one of the things that I get asked by clients, um, such or comes up in my practice, is um, the issue of expenses, which I think this element speaks to somewhat. And you know, having an independent contractor relationship with um, a, an individual, where under the terms of the written agreement, there is some oftentimes a negotiated agreement to cover some expense. Oh, you know, we were going to provide you a computer. Mm-hmm. Or you're going to be driving around, um, so we're going to co- we're going to provide you mileage reimbursement, um, or some other aspect of that. And it sounds to me, um, Jeff, that under this provision, that type of a negotiated agreement is not going to tilt the needle too far in in either direction. If there's other evidence where the worker is investing in the in in their business and it may not just be capital investments either the entrepreneurial part of it suggests maybe that those could also be investments of time investments of goodwill or other types of investments that don't necessarily have um aren't dollars and cents is that is that fair i mean what you're saying is logical i don't know that that's what the department of labor is is viewing it as um that would remain to be seen. seen but i don't know that they've looked they haven't they haven't said investment includes investment of time they've said investment is capital investment they do use the word entrepreneurial which could mean the amount of time you put in in, in creating the business and, and that kind of thing um i i think that what the contract you know again you're right you could be a subcontractor Right, and the prime contractor that's hiring you is agreeing to cover certain expenses, right? And that's just a negotiated term between the two businesses. Um, ultimately, whether the department looks at that and says, "Okay, well, we're not going to give that too much weight here. We're not going to give the investment factor too much weight here because there was obviously a negotiated agreement," remains to be seen. Um, but they certainly are going to look at the end of the day of how much investment you've put into the workers or put into their business versus the, the hiring entity. So the next factor they talk about is the degree of permanence of the work relationship. And what they mean by permanence is that most, pe- most entities or you know, people that are in business for themselves work for a lot of different principles, right? Are hired for a lot of different, from a lot of different, for, by a lot of different businesses. What they're saying here in permanency is not only permanent, meaning you've been there, you've been working for that entity for three years, but is it sporadic and project-based, right? Or is it like this is just what you do? You just work for this one business, um, and that's that's the analysis on permanence. Is is it sporadic? Do you have other 
clients that you work for, or are you really just working long term for this and one business? That, and it's really the open ended nature of things. You know, I was, I, maybe it's a California thing. We oftentimes point to plumbers as the example of the, oh, that's an independent contractor. And in thinking about my, you know, I have in my house, I have a plumber. We have I, what I would like to think is a permanent relationship in that he is the plumber that I go to when I have plumbing problems. But I don't always have plumbing problems. And yeah, I had a really good run for about three years before two weeks ago. Um, and I had him back. Um, <laughs> Sorry to hear that. <laughs> I appreciate that, Jeff. But, but anyway, that's not what the agency, I think, is getting at here in terms of, or what the test is talking about in terms of a permanent permanent or the degree of permanence of the relationship, but is it more that there's no indefinite end to the, and, and right. that the flow of work is a relatively constant one on an indefinite basis? You, that's, that's, that's one of the elements they're looking at as it, it, when they analyze this factor. Um, so, and you know, what they do when they analyze this factor is they say, here's the factor, it's permanence. And that's one of the factors, sporadic, you know, doing sporadic work for the principal of the business is a factor, whether it's definite or indefinite period of time is a factor. But then they go back and they go to each one of these things and kind of carve out circumstances where they say, well, but even if it's sporadic, right, or even if it's, you know, of a, of a, a, a set term, they could still be an employee, right? So they want to make sure that they're not foreclosed improving a worker as an employee no matter what the facts are so for instance they say you know they give a caveat they they say talk about this indefinite period of the relationship versus a a set term of relationship and they say but a worker's lack of a permanent or indefinite relationship with an employer is not necessarily indicative of independent contractor status um, if it doesn't result from the worker's own independent business initiative um, so, and they also say, okay, and even if you're sporadic, even if you're working, you know, for X months for, for one business, and then you go and you work for other businesses for these other months, um, if work is temporary or seasonal, that also doesn't necessarily bear on workers being independent contractors. They could still be found to be employees. So they're, they're not closing any doors here to finding that a worker is... But it does seem that there's a bit of a guidepost there, if you will, in terms of whether the sporadic nature of the work is driven from the employer's perspective this is a seat. This is a seasonal right. job, Jeff, and we're going to have you here for the month of December. And then after the holiday rushes over, our relationship will end. Correct. Um, you feel free to apply again next year. On the one hand, and where the sporadic nature of the work is driven by from the worker's perspective, because I have a clientele, I have a business, I have a relationship with you, because I may be the person that you go to for graphic design or web development or IT. Um, but I'm also working with other people. And so that, that's why I'm sporadic, because I don't have, always have time to be taking projects from you. Yes, Damien, that, that's correct. And the examples they give uh, in, this, in this situation are, is, is a cook. And they talk about a cook that uh, prepares meals for an entertainment venue. And they do that continuously for several years. And they prepare the meals as directed by the venue, which is really a control factor, not a permanence factor. Um, and they do so depending on the size and specifics of the event. 
Um, and the venue has regularly scheduled events each week and the cook only prepares food for them. They say this is more akin to a, an employee relationship than an independent contractor relationship. The other example they give is a cook that's prepares, that prepares specialty meals intermittently for an entertainment venue uh, for the past several years. Uh, but the cook markets their meal preparation services to multiple venues and private individuals and turns down work from time to time from any one of its clients or this particular venue because it's got other jobs. Um, the cook has a sporadic or project-based non-exclusive relationship with the entertainment venue. That fact would lean more towards an independent contractor relationship. So that does sort of, you know, affirm what you were just saying, whereas it's more a question of the worker turning down the work than the business saying, you know, we don't have any work for you, or we're only operating these months, or whatever it is. So with respect to the, the, the degree of control, there had been some precedent that certain things were not controlled, even though they resulted in limitations of what a worker could do. So for instance, if there were legal regulations that require work be done in a certain way, that that was an example of an employer exerting control over a worker. Or if there were health and safety standards that were applied to protect workers or you know, uh, third parties or, or whatever it was, that if it's for health and safety purposes, that's not really control either. It's really only control when it's, to, you know, when it's a, a decision made by the entity to exert control over the worker for their own benefit. Um, what the Department of Labor is saying this new rule is that no, that could still be control. All those things can be control, whether it's contractual, whether it's health and safety standards, whether it's compliance with legal regulations. Under certain circumstances, each one of those things could potentially be control. Um, the examples that they give under the control factor um, is uh, a registered nurse. And they say a nurse providing care for a particular establishment um, the nursing home sets the work schedule, uh, even with input from staff, but they set the work schedule. Um, the internal policies pro prohibit the nurse from working for other nursing homes while employed by that company. Um, the nursing staff are supervised by regular check-ins from supervisors, even though they generally perform their work without direct supervision, um, and, and so on. They say those are all all factors that would lean towards the nurse, the worker being an employee. The other example they give is a registered nurse that provides specialty movement therapy to residents at a at assisted living home, for instance. The nurse maintains a website. The nurse was contacted by the assisted living establishment to assist its residents. Um, the nurse provides the therapy without any supervision by anybody at the, at the, uh, at the establishment um, and sets the price for her services and has a website to market them and so on. That would be more of an example of an independent contractor. One of the things that, one of the things that we should note with respect to this control factor is the comments given by the Department of Labor and how it should be analyzed are clearly being done with a view towards the gig economy again. So for instance, they say 
scheduling as a control factor should be assessed in view of the total amount of control exerted by an employer and that just scheduling flexibility, for instance, is not necessarily indicative of IC status where other aspects of control are present. Um, and that's always been a big thing with the gig, gig economy, by definition, it's a gig economy, right? So the worker decides when and for how long they're gonna provide services and do that gig. Um, they're saying just because they have that, that ability and they control their schedule does not mean that they're still, that the control factor can't be analyzed in a different way. Um, they say supervision, lack of apparent in-person supervision is not necessarily indicative of IC status. Again, that's keeping, you know, the view towards gig workers. Setting a price or rate for goods or services. Uh, this relates to whether a worker is economically dependent on an employer, and an employer setting a price or rate must, has to be carefully considered as evidence of employee status. Again, with a lot of these gig workers, they, they, they do the work, but the charge to the end user, the amount charged to the end user is determined by the hiring entity, not the worker. Uh, ability to work for others. Again, something you would think, and that also goes under that permanence factor, you would think if you have the ability to work for a lot of different entities that you're an independent contractor, not an employee, and they, you know, they kind of, you know, restrict that analysis a little bit, I guess is, is the word. Um, and they say that uh, a restriction on working for others does indicate employee status, um, but it's not necessarily uh, dispositive. It, you know, Jeff, it seems that the control element is oftentimes, I think, one of the most difficult ones to really pin down and and I don't think from my ear that this rulemaking actually does anything to clean it up I think it may even make it a little bit harder to um, to, to suss out because at the end of the day when you're the the principal party in a contract and you're you're you are paying a price for a service to be performed uh, you're going to maintain some control if for nothing else of the expectation of whether the um, contract was fulfilled um, according to its terms and whether you were happy with the product that you got at the end of the day. And that is, I think, particularly challenging when the independent contractor or the putative independent contractor is being engaged to provide services to the business itself, as opposed to the, the hypothetical that you mentioned where the nurse was providing um, services directly to the clientele of the, uh, of the I think it was a nursing home. Um, there's also a yeah. situation where, yeah, this is a, a, again, I keep going to graphic designers and web developers, but I'll use that example, I'll pick on that. We, we, we engaged someone to do our website and we said, this is what we want the website to look like. This is when we want to go live with it. So we're going to give you a schedule based on our go live date when we want to see, you know, when we want to see drafts or we want to do this or we want to do that. It seems like DOL is saying not so clear. We're going to have to look really closely at this relationship when you know, I think in the past, Jeff, even prior to the 2021 rulemaking, that the, in 
to most people's ears, what I just described with the, the web designer sounds like an independent contractor relationship traditionally, but I think under this new DLL interpretation, um, you know, it may fall to employers to be a bit more searching, or I should say businesses, to be a bit more searching about how they define um, how they define projects to avoid having too much yeah. control. I mean, traditionally, right, the typical phrasing that, that is looked to is it's okay to exert control over the end, what the end product has to be, right? So a very simple analysis, right, is I want you to paste, paint my house blue, right? The, the, the worker can't, even an independent contractor, painting company can't say, oh, we're right. going to paint it red, right? Like, I want my house painted, I want the whole house painted, and I want it painted blue. That's not control, that's the end product that you're contracting for. The control factor is typically looked at as the means by which the service is performed. So if you're telling the worker what paintbrushes to use, right? If you're telling them you know, what ladder to use and which way to do the paint strokes and that kind of thing, that's the means by which they're performing services. And that's traditionally what control is meant to, to, to mean not control over the end product. But I do think that the Department of Labor is, is not, again, closing out any, any arguments that they can make in any way to find that a, that a worker is an employee. Um, but um, let's, let's move on to the next factor, um, which is the integral to operations factor. Now, the 2021 rule really narrowed this, and they looked back at like the original case law going back like 50 years, and they said, it was never supposed to be integral to the business. It was, it was integral to a uh, line of production, right? So that if you were a factory worker on a line of production, right, that would mean that you're most likely going to be an employee because you're integral to that line of production, but not integral to the business generally because that could mean a lot of things. Um, so that's sort of how the 2021 rule characterized it. Um, here they're rolling it back and they're saying, no, 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 it's not line of production. It's integral to the business, period, and it's totality of the factors and will, and you know, a judge or the DOL sitting in judgment on a case like this will look at, you know, we'll see what that looks like and determine whether it's really something that an independent contractor would do or is really what you're in business to do. Um, so they say the focus of the factor is the work performed, not the individual worker. So it's not whether the individual worker is essential to the business, but whether the services being performed are integral to the operations of the business. Um, an example they give is a large farm that grows tomatoes that it sells to distributors. The farm pays workers to pick the tomatoes during the harvest season because picking tomatoes is an integral part of farming tomatoes. Uh, this would lean towards them being employees. The independent contractor version of that would be the same farm pays an accountant to provide non-payroll accounting support, including filing its tax returns. And it's interesting that they carved out non-payroll support services as payroll might be integral to somebody's operations, but tax services wouldn't. And, and truthfully, there's a lot of services that do payroll that are independent businesses, but they, they specifically carve that out um, and then they say this accounting support is not critical, necessary, or central to the principal business of the farm. Thus, the accountant is like you know would more likely be an independent contractor. Um, so again, they're leaving themselves wide open here to 
in, in doing an analysis. Um, so that's how they're looking at that integral to operations factor. Then the final factor is the skill and initiative factor. Um, and the 2021 rule characterized this as the amount of skill required for the work. So, you know, it really focused on the worker and how much skill they were required to have to perform the function. Um, the current rule that's proposed by the Department of Labor is something a little bit different. They're saying it's skill and initiative, not just skill. And it considers whether the worker uses specialized skills to perform the work and whether those skills contribute to business-like initiative that is consistent with the worker being in business for themselves rather than being economically dependent on the employer. And they point out that a lot of employees may have a very narrow uh, uh, skill set and have an expertise in a specific area. It doesn't mean they're independent contractors. An employee can have that as well as everyone else. It's a question of how they developed it, that they developed outside their employment context, um, or was it something the, the employer trained them to do? Um, do they have a business-like initiative in developing and exercising that skill? The example that they give is a highly skilled welder that provides specialty welding service, such as custom aluminum welding for a variety of different area construction companies. That person would more likely be an independent contractor. Um, if, the weld, if, if there's a welder that works for a aluminum company works for one company and is taught how to do the welding by the company, um, that type of worker, even though they have a specific skill, it, it, the, the initiative factor isn't there and they'd be more likely determined to be an employee. So that is the skill and initiative factor under the current rule versus the old rule. Um, the they also do note that since it's totality of the circumstances, other additional factors could also come into play, but these are the main factors they want the courts to look at. And so, you know, I guess it's to give an initial reaction, um, Jeff. If the 2021 rule, the intent behind the 2021 rule was to provide greater clarity for employers, it seems that the intent behind the maybe what we're going to call the 2022 rule, we'll see, we'll see what ends up happening with it. But the intent behind this new rulemaking is to create a more individualized analysis of each individual relationship that may come before the agency or before, before a court. Yep. And guess what comes with more individualized analysis? more inconsistent determinations by the courts and more confusion for employers. Um, but, you know, that's my view on it. <laughs> and of course, it's a, it's a really, uh, really high-stakes decision that employers have to make on the front end without very much guidance um, because the agency is, is bestowing this rule upon us, albeit with some very nice hypothetical examples, but without the guidance or really good, clear um, um, judicial um, scaffolding behind it that employers can look to to, uh, to make these determinations from engagement to engagement. Because I do think as, I, as, as we go through this, or as we have gone through this, you can see where 
the agency um, or a court may even find two individual workers within the same organization doing the same job to be having inconsistent or, or different outcomes where one could be an employee and one could be an independent contractor. That's right. And it's going to be determined by the totality of the circumstances. So um, this is where we are. And now, Damien, now that we've gone through all these things and we've discussed all the different factors and the state of, of this rulemaking, what should employers do? What should businesses do? As you like to say, Jeff, they should call their attorney. <laughs> um, and of course, uh, that that I, I think is probably for these types of, of situations, especially when an employer is looking at an independent contractor or classification that they may think is um, suspect or may lead to, to risk. One of the first things is, I think, to get to engage with either in, inside or, or outside counsel um, for guidance there. Um, and and um, obviously, with this change in the rule and various overlaying state rules out there as well, um, it's important to have professional guidance. But I do think employers are going to have to take a careful look whenever they are going to engage, I think particularly with individuals, but maybe also with, with small um, sole proprietor businesses um, where these issues can also sometimes arise. They're going to have to take a careful look at what these um, required elements are, again, with the guidance of counsel. And sometimes it's really as much, Jeff, about structuring the actual relationship as it takes place. I think particularly with the, that control element, making sure that we are creating and that the people that are engaged directly with that person are creating an appropriate level of distance so that if the relationship gets scrutinized, you can say like, look, we weren't really exerting control other than toward the end, the end product and the end result. Yes. Totally agree. Um, and, you know, what, what really I think it, it, employers should consult with their attorneys, but they should also just be keeping an eye on this, right? And asking their attorneys or uh, whoever they have to play that role to keep an eye on where this is going um, because there's going to be this comment period, right? And then some point after that, the Department of Labor is going to issue a final rule that's going to go into effect by a certain date. And then there's going to be legal challenges, right? And it may end up in front of the, the Supreme Court. And if it ends up in the Supreme Court, you know, with the makeup of this court, I could see the court saying, but this is not, this is too amorphous of a rule. And, you know, there's, there was a rule already put in by the, the prior administration that went into effect 2021, and there hasn't been a good rationale given by the Department of Labor to supersede that rule by, by putting this rule into effect. So it all remains to be seen, but employers and businesses should just be very conscious of the fact that this independent contractor analysis is really important, that they should be looking at where it could go in the future and, and prepare, be prepared for that. We thank you for listening and we appreciate your support. If you have any questions or comments regarding our podcast, please email us at podcasts at acreman.com. Again, that's podcasts at acreman.com. We welcome your input or we may answer one of your questions on an upcoming episode.